The following presentation is a Barrett Sports Media production. He's connected. Jason Barrett says, I'd like to see you here. The answer is when, where, what do you need? Respected. He's got a long and distinguished career in the sports radio business. Truly one of the titans of our industry. And unequivocally invested. This is the place to be if you're in the sports business. He is Jason Barrett. And this is the Jason Barrett Podcast. Now bringing you in-depth conversations with the best and brightest in sports media. And shedding light on the industry's biggest opportunities and challenges. Here's the the president of Barrett Media, Jason Barrett. Nice to have you aboard as we examine the world of sports media here on the Jason Barrett Podcast. As always, I am Jason Barrett. Excited on this episode to bring you an in-depth conversation with Bomani Jones. Many of you know Bomani for the work he's done on ESPN. Some of you may be watching his TV show, Game Theory, on HBO or listening to his podcast, The Right Time with Bomani Jones. Others may have discovered his work years ago, whether it's been in written form or on local or national radio. Bo is an interesting guy who makes you think. And as you listen to our conversation today, I'm sure you'll find them giving you plenty to chew on. So stick around. That's coming up in just a few minutes. A reminder, the 2023 BSM Summit is coming to Los Angeles on March 21st and 22nd. We'll be hosting our two-day event at the Founders Club at the Galen Center at USC. We've announced 11 speakers so far and have a lot more still to come. Whenever we run this event, People will say they're going to come, and they do, but a month before, there's a lot of scrambling to find a hotel room and get a ticket. And at that point, I can't always accommodate. So my advice, reserve your room, buy your ticket in advance. This is a paid event, and come February and March, it will be full. So get out in front of it now. But that's the business for today. Let's get into some content. It's time now for this week's edition of what I've seen or heard. Attention. Attention. Have I got your attention now? I considered talking about WDAE's lineup overhaul or ESPN adding another alternate broadcast, this one for the NBA season with Stephen A. Smith, but I'm not going to do that. Instead, I want to share a few thoughts from the 2022 NAB show. I was in New York City last week for the show and had a chance to be part of two different panels. As much as I enjoyed those moments, there were a few other things that were more important. Our business often gets criticized for not evolving or taking risks. Sometimes those criticisms are even valid. But when people show they're trying to move the industry forward, it's important to point that out too. If you were in the room for Xperi's presentation on DTS Auto Stage, which Pierre Bouvard of Westwood One was a part of, you couldn't help but be blown away by some of the things they showed. The same could be said of Futuri's artificial intelligence presentation, and if you had the benefit of spending time, as I did, with folks from Veritone, learning how they're using AI to make archiving, ad tracking, and data analysis better for the industry, you'd know there's a lot of things on the horizon that are going to make our business better. I could go on and on about what each of those groups are working on, but honestly, You'd learn a lot more going onto their websites to see it for yourself. 
Some of the advancements I saw were extremely impressive, and though there are still questions on how some of these things will work, how soon they'll be ready, and if they'll get enough support from the radio and auto industry, there are questions about a number of things presently in place across the business. So rather than doing what many do and complaining, I thought I would draw attention to a few groups who are trying to make things better. If you haven't gone to an NAB show before, you really should, and here's why. First, it always helps to know what's on the horizon in your industry. Secondly, you can connect with a lot of key people in a short amount of time, which I certainly took advantage of last week. Third, there's also a moment or two that you remember for years to come. In my case, I was in the middle of a conversation with Nick Wright, Danny Parkins, and Evan Cohen when two college students approached and asked to interrupt for a second. I figured they're going to ask one of those guys for insight on becoming a better host, but instead, they wanted to chat with yours truly. At first, I'm thinking, are you nuts? You don't want to talk to these guys? But then Evan made a good point. JB's likely to get you hired. We won't. So I chalked that one up as a win, but still very funny and appreciate those guys stopping by to say hello. If you're in the industry and you're listening to this right now, I know getting out of the office isn't always easy, but if you don't, you can forget what makes your industry special sometimes. It's the people, the relationships, the recognition, and the new technology being created to help you improve productivity and generate better results. Never was that more clear than at the Marconi Awards. Credit to the NAB, by the way, for keeping the show moving. I've been to some in the past, which took a while to get through. This one did not. There were a few items I saw that I want to draw attention to. First, as someone who loves sports radio, it was cool seeing Jimmy Powers of 97.1, the ticket in Detroit, accept the award for top sports station. The sports hub in Boston has been a monster, but the ticket is a brand that can more than hold its own in the category Kudos to Jimmy and his team for a well-deserved honor. I just mentioned Boston, and so perfect segue. I enjoyed watching Greg Hill of WEEI take home the award for Major Market Personality of the Year. Yes, he messed up Susan Larkin's last name and probably won't live that down internally, but knowing Greg a little bit, I was happy for him. Some know I've done work with WEEI before. I don't anymore. But that crew has gone through a ton over the years, and to see them pick up a win was just a really cool moment for everyone inside of that building. I was also excited for Ryan Hatch and Phoenix picking up Legendary Station of the Year for the work KTAR has done, and seeing Fred and Paul Jacobs get recognized by the industry for their impact on the business for the past few decades. But honestly, my favorite moment didn't involve a corporate radio station or professional talent. It actually involved a group of college students from Hofstra's WRHU and their reaction when they learned they'd won the Marconi for College Radio Station of the Year. My son Dylan goes to this school, so of course I paid more attention than usual to the award. But just seeing the pure joy and enthusiasm from everyone at Hofstra's table when they heard their name called was awesome. Then when station manager Rachel Lucier took the stage and opened up by saying, I'm here to tell you, college students love radio. It was such a great reminder that not every person under 34 thinks our business isn't fun, cool, and one worth pursuing. 
I realize people live in a phone and digital is where things are and will be even more in the future, but that doesn't mean radio isn't a big part of that future. I get really tired of hearing how radio is for old people. Sure, there are things about it that need to be better, but can't we say that about a lot of industries? If you read the trades, talk to people in conference halls, or ask folks in the advertising business, they'd have you convinced we're on the verge of extinction. And sorry, folks, but I just don't believe that to be the case. The devices and platforms may change, but creating content and engaging audiences through audio will not. Sometimes it takes a brief moment to remind you that you're in a fun business that others see great opportunity in. My thanks to Hofstra University students for providing a needed reminder. Well done, sir. As we do on each episode, if you have a thought on anything I just said, my email is jbarrett at sportsradiopd.com. I'm also available across social media. But now it's time to set up this week's conversation, and it takes place with Bomani Jones. If you've followed Bo's career, you know he's someone who's unafraid to speak his mind. And whether you love him or loathe him, he makes you think and he makes you react. Bo has been through a lot of different situations in his career, and he's comfortable addressing issues facing the sports media industry. So kick back, relax, and enjoy the conversation with the host of HBO's Game Theory, Bomani Jones. Yo, listen! Before I get into where you're at in your current life, ESPN, HBO, all that fun stuff, that's what people are going to see now, that's what they know, but I want to go back to the beginning, because at some point you had to listen to somebody, read somebody, watch somebody, and said, I want to do that. Who was that? Oh, Ralph Wiley in terms of the writing. Like, that one's kind of a no question. I was... Absolutely an acolyte of the early ESPN.com page too. And so like it's an interesting combination when I think about it of Ralph Wiley and Bill Simmons in the sense that Simmons did it in a way that made you feel like you could. Like that's there's a reason why we got so many Bill Simmons soundalikes out yep. here. And it's because Simmons did it in a way that made you feel like you could do it. But Ralph did it in a way that like it took me to a place of understanding what was possible working in this and like all the different things and like the brain power that you could put into this and that you didn't have to go about this in a way that ignored the things that were important, but also you didn't have to be so like dogmatic when you talked about those things and like how to work those ideas in and all of that. And so that's what got me into it just in general. Uh, all the on air stuff, I just kind of stumbled into. Like, I didn't really have anybody to be like, oh, this person made me think that I could do it. It's like it came up and I was like, oh, yeah, I can do this. <laughs> so, when you started, where, where'd you start? How'd you get into, you know, the business writing, doing radio, eventually TV? Yeah. So, my senior year of college, I started freelance writing. Like, I had just made a decision that that was something I wanted to do. Nascent days of the internet, and you could, you know, the ability to self-publish and everything just kind of opened stuff up for me. And it was just kind of a network of like emailing stuff to your friends and then your friend knows somebody and you get it on this place and you put a link here or whatever. And I had some people who talked to me in ways that led me to believe that I could do it professionally. And like dead up, after a month or two of being an amateur, I was able to get people to pay me a couple hundred bucks a piece to write an <laughs> essay um, or something like that. But I wasn't doing sports. And 
I didn't have any idea how to get into sports, to be honest. So I was writing about like cultural type stuff and also did a lot of things about music. And I eventually like got to a point of writing a music column for um, AOL Black Voices. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, like I became fairly respected as a music journalist. Um, and that kind of sticks around to this day. But with sports, um, there was two things. One, there was a gentleman named David Cole who worked at um, Africana.com, the first website to regularly use my work and he was trying to start um, an operation called the black sports network and he was trying to get that website off and he brought me over and would pay me and let me write stuff over there but then on the other side with sports in 2003 a buddy of mine went to a ralph wiley book signing and he told me he had you know established a relationship with him and i said hey man you got to send him this thing i just wrote and he did send it to him and ralph thought it was good and was kind enough to let me stay in touch with him and so we stayed in touch over time. And then uh, there was a story that had come out at one point. I remember he, I mean, he emailed it to me and Michael Wilbon. And I remember how blown away I was that like my name was in the same email field under two as Michael Wilbon. And I replied to him and I told him, I was like, hey, if you want to do something on this story, I know some people that might be able to help you out. And then a couple of days later, I got an email from the um, editor at page two saying, Ralph says you could write this. How'd you like to do it? Pretty and so, cool. Yeah, Pretty man. Because cool, that's yeah. your influence at that time. This isn't just somebody giving you a break. This is the person you look up to. Yeah, and I never saw it coming. It was the most mind-blowing idea that this thing could happen. And as I recall, that was the first thing I'd ever sold in sports was something for ESPN.com. And so I established a relationship with the people inside from there. And I freelanced for them for about a year. And then I did a year on contract. But that was, that was my way in. The things that I wrote early made traction not necessarily like box office numbers, but with people who wrote, who saw it and were like, hey, who's this guy? You, you kind of skip past the hard part. <laughs> the hard part is, you, and I know you did some of it, so I'm going to ask you about it, but here you are, you're getting a break with ESPN pretty quick. And it's from somebody that obviously influenced you to get in the business. But I know you also did some of the local stuff. You did some oh, North yeah. Carolina radio. You also did some work with the score. What were those early days like for you? Well, see, that's the thing. I didn't skip those things. I just hadn't gotten to those yet, right? <laughs> like it was a, it was like in terms of the arc, I start doing the ESPN stuff, and then they don't renew my contract um, in two thousand seven, and I'm kind of in the wilderness. I didn't have like a path to go back to, or like there, there was no step to go back to. Well, while I was working for ESPN, I started doing um, the occasional appearance on the local sports radio station <clears throat> in Raleigh, uh, A50 The Buzz at the time. Um, Adam Gold realized that I lived in town and was like, hey, why don't we have this, you know, we got a national writer in town, we should have him in. And he really thought I was good. And so I'll never forget after ESPN did not renew my contract, which I was not happy about, and I called him to complain about it. And his response to me was, so what you're saying is you can do radio now. <laughs> okay. And Adam says, here's what I'm thinking. I want you to host our Saturday morning show. And I would like you to be our number one fill-in. So when somebody doesn't come to work, I'd like you to be that guy. And if it goes the way that I think it will go, our afternoon drive host takes the summers off. And I want you to fill in for him during the summers and so shannon and i did a saturday show on the buzz and i would then fill in whenever i mean there would be days where i do i wouldn't do three shifts a day but there are plenty of days where i would be doing two you know do do 
my show and then somebody else or do my show and then monday i'm doing somebody else's show and then when i was doing in the summer and i'm doing afternoons i was still the number one fill-in and so if the midday guy wasn't there and i needed the money i'm getting paid by the show and so i do a midday show go get something to eat come back an hour or so later and then now we're doing the afternoon drive show so yeah i did that and it was a wonderful experience like i realized very quickly that I love doing radio like it wasn't it it didn't take long for me to figure that out the hard part for me with it was making people understand that other people shall we say could appreciate what i did Mm -hmm. on radio like that was the fear like i'll never forget they never put out a press release to announce that i had taken over this new show and i can only assume that that was because there was a concern as to whether or not the audience was going to get on board with the idea of me being there and when i first got on the radio i mean i was a very provocative figure shall we say part of it being that i was a bit like i would not say i was ever intentionally provocative because that's not really my bag but i knew how to get people i'm not gonna pretend like i didn't (laughs) but also like in fairness i'm a dude that wasn't from the area and now i got to talk about these local sports that i've never paid that much attention i'm just trying to picture what two three hours of your content is in raleigh north carolina early days Hurricanes, national stuff, college yeah. hoops. Going. Well, it's co- well, it's college. What are you focused on? Yeah, it's college football and it's college basketball. Like that's really what it is. Hockey, yep. there was a team, but the numbers that told them there really wasn't that much traction in talking right. about it on the radio. And so it was the college teams, but these people grew up with these teams, right? So they like it's in their bones in a way it would never be in mine. And so I figured out very quickly that I needed to learn from them. But I was also a 27 year old black dude doing local radio, right? It was shocking and mind blowing to people. And not just a 27 year old black dude, like I'm not like former Wolfpack shooting guard, Bomani <laughs> Jones, right? There's there's right. no, yeah, there's You're no- You're a broadcaster. Yeah. You're not an ath- a former athlete that just had a career and he then went into the studio. Yeah, and I talk like I talk. I sound like I sound. Like I'm very comfortable with being myself. And so I brought that there. And so- is me and Shannon doing this show, but every now and then we just get little nibbles that let us know that no, there's audiences out here and they're into this. We watched as the call volume went up, right? We noticed when somebody called in and made a throwback to something we say on the previous show, of course we had all the people who called in and accused me of being some kind of racist and would cuss at me and everything else. Like we had those (laughs) things, they did happen, but we also, became a very important voice for a lot of like the local black audience that the station hadn't really considered existed but what that meant was as a result i can be doing something about john wall's recruitment and then john wall's high school coach calls in and he starts off with i really appreciate your show and then tell us what's going on and so then i can be the person who is now sourced locally and talking about john wall's recruitment in a way that other people were not going to be able um, to get to. And so it was great. Um, I really enjoyed it. They gave me a midday show after I did the fill-in during the summers um, and afternoon drive. And our numbers were good. Like, that was the biggest thing. Like, this is back when the diaries were, you know, taking the numbers in. Yep. So it could be a little little unwieldy at points. But I, I remember the day that the general manager realized that the show was working and he didn't tell me this directly. Somebody else did. Cause you know, on radio, your boss never wants to tell you that you got good numbers. You gonna like mess up and ask for more money. But there was a game in 
January or February of 2009, Duke played Clemson at Clemson and lost 82 to 58, which was just stunning, something that did not happen at that point in time. And I remember people were sending me emails like, hey, we're trying to listen to the online stream, but we can't get on. And I was like, hey, something's wrong with the online stream. And they told me that it was broken. And I was like, no, I know what's happened. It's not broken. It's overloaded. We have maxed out the stream again. I was like, we got something here. And mm-hmm. we had an audience and we're doing remotes and people are showing up. We got regular people showing up and the sales staff is like, wow, our remotes are never like this. I, unlike most people in this industry, never had any doubt that people could appreciate good content. And I knew that we had, and I poured myself into that content. I'd never worked harder at anything than I did at doing local radio. And then the station got sold and the new station didn't pick me up. That's their call. I went to do satellite radio with the score because the folks in Canada saw I had 5,000 Twitter followers and they knew me from the ESPN stuff. And that 5,000 Twitter followers in the fall of 09 was a really big deal. And they were the first people to ever treat me like I was somebody. Like they believed that they had found a really great talent. And when you look at who was at the score at the time, they had an eye for these things. Renee Paquette, I guess she is Renee Young in the wrestling world. She was at the score when I was there. Adnan Verk left just before I was there. Um, Art O'Cal, who now works with ESPN, he was at the score when I was there. Uh, Greg Wyshynski, Puck Daddy, he came on while I was there. Uh, A gentleman named Cabby, who does a lot of work um, in Canada, was the big star they had there. My man Cam Stewart. Like, they had a lot. Corey Erdman, who now works at DAZN doing boxing, was the producer on my radio show. But they had a satellite show, and I was like, he's going to play in the United States? Okay, cool. And so I brought my audience, and we kind of merged it with theirs, and then we kind of went nationwide. And then now I have a national show that has a strong online footprint, which legitimizes me in such a way that I can get onto Around the Horn. I was going to say, so then how does that get you back to ESPN? Because you, you mentioned earlier, you get in there, they don't pick you up. You have to go the local route start paying your dues, get some experience there, score notices you, but ESPN obviously has to second guess and go, hey, maybe we had something here. We need to take a second look and get this guy back in the fold. All right, so the key thing to understand is we have to be very specific when we talk about who ESPN is, right? And so when I am talking about ESPN, I am talking about the operation that is working out of Bristol, working out of New York, like in those spaces. Yep. So... In 09, I get on Twitter and I quickly figured out that I could do damage on there. And what I mean by damage is it was just a perfect format for my brain. And it was perfect also for me for what I would call, for lack of a better term, my brand. And I mean that in the sense that I did so many things that now I have this account where I can talk about all these things. Like some people know me as a music guy and don't know me as a sports guy. Some people know me as a sports guy, but don't know me as a music guy. Some people know me for like more academic type stuff. Don't realize I do all those other things. I had a place where I could do them all and serve that entire audience. And now the people I respect are starting to click follow. And one of those people was Tony Reale because this is 2010. He's looking to expand and freshen up the panelists on Around the Horn because the guys they had were the same guys they had for the whole time, right? Yep. Like it's just time to add something new. And he and Aaron Solomon, the executive producer, the coordinating producer of that show, they decided to have me on. And I just remember the first day I decided, I asked myself, I was like, I can be like, ooh, please have me back on. Or two, one night only, let's rock it. 
and I went with it's one night only, we gonna rock it. And that was my approach the whole time on it. Like I felt like after ESPN had let me go in 2007, that that was over. Like that's not something that's gonna come back around. Right. And so I, my content was not intentionally like um, the antithesis of ESPN, but it was, it was a recognition that I need to do a different type of content than that company does, right? It could be similar in terms of what we talk about, but in terms of my approach and everything, I need to differentiate myself because I'm just doing what ESPN does. They're going to go to ESPN. And it worked. Like, there was just no way around it. It worked. Um, I was working at SB Nation because the score went out of the, the score's radio station. They shut that down at the end of 2011. I'm working at SB Nation 2012. We get to early 2013. That was a time of great expansion in the sports television industry. That's NBC Sports is getting going as they're making the transition right. off the versus CBS Sports is coming around. FS1 is being launched. Um, and I was a very interesting commodity in the sense that I had an ESPN presence, but I did not have an ESPN contract. So if you wanted to get somebody that people knew from ESPN, you could come get me. Yep. Um, and so I had a lot of interest. I heard from just about everybody in the industry. Interestingly enough, who I did not hear from was ESPN. They didn't have any inventory. They didn't have anything to do with me. But see, this is why the distinction between ESPN as the Bristol operation is the case, because that is probably true about what was going on in Bristol. But around the horn is done out of D.C. from the ride home shop. Got it. Um, and so... ESPN did not say, hey, we think we made a mistake. They didn't say that even in, I mean, honestly, they don't say that. That's not how, that's <laughs> no. not, that's no, not, no, they don't. That's, that's not what they do. They, you I mean, just they, move they, on and, and they go, yeah, we had, we had a relationship previously. Yeah. Ain't a lot of time for looking back, right? Like I don't have any problem with that, but ain't a right. lot of time for looking back. Um, and so Dan Levitard needed a co-host and Dan Levitard believed Dan Levitard needed a co-host and Dan Levitard had a relationship with the president of the company. And Dan, Le Dan ultimately, after I had done his show a few times, I'd been on there once or twice a week as they were trying some things. They had somebody in the focus group say that what Highly Questionable needed was me. Dan goes to Skipper and says, I'd like him to be on the show. And then John Skipper charms my pants off. <laughs> um, and I wind up doing the show with Dan. And then it all goes from there. So when you get in there, you start doing Levitard. I know eventually you move into the radio space. Who talked right. you into that? I mean, I always wanted to do radio. Like part of always wanting to do radio was the importance of being on as many platforms as you could be on. Like I recognized that very early. Like I started my own podcast in 2010 out of my house that I still kind of run. Like I've always appreciated the, the value of being in as many of these places as possible. And I love doing radio, but they brought me on to do those television projects. They brought me on to do um, Highly Questionable and to do Around the Horn. And they were paying me more money than I had ever been paid in my life. And honestly, in terms of what the actual workload was at that time, I felt like it was a steal. But, you know, <laughs> radio, I didn't really, I mean, I wasn't in that space at the time. But Dave Roberts um, was, I don't know his exact position, so I want to be careful. But Dave Roberts had some say. And what was going on on radio and he decided he was going to change up what the radio lineup looked like and they had an opening from 9 to 11 and he asked if i wanted to do it and i absolutely wanted to do it and i love doing it and then after that colin made the move to fox they moved dan from the afternoon drive space into 10 to 1 um and then they moved me to 4 to 7 
what did you learn from that? Like, cause when you go from doing a very regional local show to now you're talking to the whole nation, you've got bosses, I'm sure in that building, ESPN is a very big company. I worked there for two years. You had some bosses who love the show, hate the show, some who have no opinion of the show. So you got to police all these things. You're doing a new radio show. The network's going through some change since Colin left. What, what did you learn from the experience? I think the thing that I learned that I can take with me the most is if the boss brings you in and then there's a new boss, it's a whole new world. Um, doing national radio, particularly drive time national radio, is a very, very difficult job. It was always difficult, but I would say it is even more difficult in the PPM universe. My old boss who did this, I don't blame him. This is a reasonable thought, but we're there one day and he's like, hey, we just got an announcement that the Raiders are moving to Las Vegas. Okay, we have a Sacramento PPM station. We should probably talk about the Raiders going to Las Vegas. Now, my response to that is, okay, but the people who want to know about that are going to be listening to the local station in Sacramento. But we're trying to figure out how to do something that makes this person with this thing around their neck stick around and listen to your show. But it's also something that makes this other person with their thing around their neck in this whole other place also want to stick around. But we got like 20 of these places where people have these things around their necks and you got to be the one to figure out how to thread the needle on that and that's one thing when it's the NFL season, right? You can just talk about football and everything is cool. When you're getting into basketball, this is not as simple in trying to figure it out. And so with drive in particular, your competition is always going to beat you because the competition is local. Then you wind up in the place of what station are we actually on, right? So you can tell me I'm in a top 10 market, but if I'm in a top 10 market and I'm on the, the AM frequency that has been abandoned as you've moved to FM, well, it's a little bit tricky. If you offered me a midday national show, I'd be down to think about it. Like I really wanted that Colin show when it came open. And I have great arguments for why it would have been a fantastic idea to give me that show. But I feel like I am at root a midday host. A midday host mm -hmm. has the room to meander. A midday host has the room to be a bit more experimental with the content because the listener at midday is not somebody just trying to pop in right fast and see what's going on, right? Like these are the radio connoisseurs who are going to be there, right? Mike and Mike was so incredibly successful as a national drive show, but you got to think about how much muscle it took behind it to make that happen and what the guest list had to be to make that happen and who the people were that were dropping in to make that happen and the television arm that was behind it to make it happen because it's just that hard to make a national drive time show stick you would ask all the sports radio connoisseurs about those national drive shows that they love you're not going to find anybody with an answer. Listen, it's true because, you know, um, and I've told this before in a podcast, when I produced Dan Patrick, I'd get called into an office one day. We love what you guys are doing. You're killing it in Dallas and L.A. All right. Awesome. We're great. The next day, we've got to talk. There's a real problem with the show. You're getting killed in New York and Chicago. I'm like, wait, you told me yesterday L.A. and Dallas is good. Now, New York, we can't please every market all the time. And what you're touching on, and I remember this back when, this is going back a ways, when Eric Casilius would do Afternoon Drive, 
I would talk about, so who are you talking to? Who's the show for? Is it for Tulsa, Oklahoma and Hartford, Connecticut? Is it for Pittsburgh? Like you mentioned, Sacramento. Sacramento at 4 o'clock Eastern is 1 o'clock midday. Well, now it's a midday show, so it's a little different. You might get cleared. If it's afternoons, they're going to put a local show in because they're going to make more local revenue. Mike and Mike back in the day, and it, you know, kudos to ESPN, they really drove. If you want to be an ESPN partner, you're taking Mike and Mike, and you're taking our play-by-play, and then there's a rights fee and all these things. And you know what? Listen, it was a big brand. It was on TV. And what usually happened when you get into markets like 20 and beyond, not necessarily the top 10, but markets 20 and beyond, they would go, you know what? We're good with Dan Patrick and Colin, but we're going to put a local afternoon show in. So now you're on the situation right. you describe where, all right, there's four stations in that market. I'm the fourth station with a 500 watt signal versus three others with 50,000 watts that are on FM. Of course, I'm going to have smaller audience inside the building. They go, this isn't really about each market as much as it is a collective story of saying, Bomani's on 100 or 200 markets. He has a total audience of X. And this is how we're going to justify whether it's working or not. But you're really up against the odds in that kind of scenario. Yeah. And so it's less about the actual performance than than trying to program a show, right? right? Because the one thing about performance that was interesting for me is I would get numbers when I was there where the rest of the network was falling off a cliff and we were flat. Like my frustration in terms of like what the goals should be, and this is just a difference of opinion, right? Like I'm not saying they're wrong, but my thought was our numbers were very good on satellite and we did well digitally. And to me, that was going to be our best chance was with the serious audience because that audience has rejected the local dial they don't make their money that way, right? Like that's not, like this was the argument I used to have at the local station when I was pushing the online stuff and they made the point, yeah, but we don't make as much money off of those ads. We need people to listen over the air, right? Like it's the same thing with streaming versus watching on linear television, right? As long as linear television makes that much money, that's gonna be what their concern is. I never had any conversation with anybody at ESPN truly like when the when they had problems with numbers somebody would come say something and we try to make it make a little tweak here make a little tweak there nobody really had a plan you know but you try to figure out how to make things better but nobody ever came to me and was like some of the doom and gloom things that i had read at different points about the radio show we had nobody ever talked to me about those things so i could never assume that they were that important right so like the one thing i say is if you tell me that you lose an affiliate there are 300 something affiliates right go look at what affiliate, I'm just pulling this number out of a hat, affiliate 85 is. Affiliate 85 is going to be a town that does not have a dot on the map. Okay, so let's say that you lose every affiliate in America below, we'll just call it Sioux Falls, South Dakota. We'll just call it that, right? Yep. What did you lose? You know what I mean? Like, what did you actually get? The other thing that happens when you're doing afternoons, that is particularly with ESPN, is they got a lot of stuff to offer in afternoons. So you'll have places that during football season will take on fine bomb or they may keep it around or whatever it is like there's there's room for them to interchange at that slot. But the only reason it bothered me is that if we lose every affiliate in the world, then that happens. You know, the market speaks that's its performance. But these decisions are not made by listeners. These decisions are made by programmers and they're made by programmers who have a tendency to walk in with an assumption of what their audience can and cannot handle 
And so it becomes like this snowballing sort of effect. And I always say, the, I say this as a joke, but I mean it. It's so wild. Everybody thinks that I think white people are so racist, but I'm the one saying that you can listen to what I do. It is these programmers who keep saying that you can't do it. And so when we were in Raleigh, as we had these moments where we realized that these things were clicking in, I'll just never forget. There was one of my favorite listeners ever, my man, Jack in Gibsonville. And it was the last day we were doing the show and the station didn't want to announce it because it was, you know, it didn't look good because they knew the show was successful. Like we had taken ratings up double from the spring of 08, which is before I got there to the spring of 09, which was mine. Uh, we had taken the numbers up and Jack called up and said, I'm not liking what I'm hearing. What's, what's going on with the Bomani show? And I said, well, Jack, we're going to have a really good day here on Friday. And then I'm going to do a good show on Saturday. And he says, well, what the hell are we going to do on Monday? <laughs> but that's what it was, right? Yep. Like we, we, the community and everything that you need to make a show work, had, it had been built. And I know that not everybody, but I know that people inside that building weren't sure that such a thing could happen. I never doubted the possibility that it could. Like I just, I mean, I went to school in a town with 1500 people in it, right? Like I knew what the common experiences were that I had to share with these people that they think that I can't connect with. And I know I can connect with them because the truth is, how many people are you listening to on these dials that went to school in towns with 1500 people, right? Like I am actually closer to the experience of these people that folks think are so diametrically opposed to who I am. I know where the overlap is. I know what the stuff is, that stuff that we all do. We just don't think we all do it because we don't hang out enough to understand that everybody does this, right? Like black people who think that white people don't have a bag in the house where you put all the plastic bags in as you keep the plastic <laughs> bags, right? This is not a racially specific sort of thing. Right, but, if right. you but if you never go to a white person's house, you don't know that they got that bag. I've been in their houses. I've been in these trailer parks. I've been in these places and not as like an Anthony Bourdain sort of tourist. I've been there because I was invited because I know those people, right? And so whenever this, you know, a discussion comes up about those things, it's always presented in a way as though there's like a rejection of me or whatever I do by some audience. And I'm like, I don't have any factual basis or evidence to believe that that is true. Because I mean, I remember when I was working in Raleigh, I went to a football game at uh, Carolina in 08, Carolina, Virginia Tech. And I remember I'm walking and I'm, you know, I'm new to this at this point. I'm walking and I'm just talking to somebody and it's not like I'm known by face. I'm not doing TV or anything by then. And I just remember hearing, wait a minute, is that Bo Marty? And I turn around and it's some white man. I think he had overalls on. <laughs> Couldn't have been happier to see me. Could not have been. And those are the people that were calling up these shows. You know what I mean? And so yep. Jim Rome is really the only person that's really figured out how to do national sports and actually build a community. And he did that on the road like he did that going to the places and doing the on-sites doing right. the remotes and like you got to put in a lot of work and it took him years and years and years to do it but he did it and locally and even with satellite it was such a great community that you could build it's really hard to build a community and serve all the masters that you have to serve when you do a national radio show i want to get back to some of the stuff you were talking about there with the uncomfortability of the program director versus the audience and you know it's it's interesting as you're saying that i'm thinking to myself like all right the two live stews were a massive success in atlanta jason whitlock was really good on the radio there are laundry lists of examples of black talent in sports radio 
And yet, you know, like you think about your own entry into sports radio, you you mentioned earlier, you got into right, you didn't at the time think about, okay, I'm going to go down the road to becoming a sports radio host, it just came as you got into the business, you started to realize, okay, that's something I want to do. There's two sides of this I want to explore. First one is, you were 27, you said, when you started to really get into it. Finding the 25 to 27-year-old Black person who's interested in doing three to four hours of local sports radio, I will tell you, it's not easy. Like, I know there are people out there, and I've always said, stop making an excuse they didn't show up in your inbox. Go find them in a different place, because if you care about having different perspectives offered, maybe they're not going to show up in your inbox. So, you know, you go to a college and go to career day, or maybe you reach out to people on social media. Maybe you try a few different tactics. But I'm curious from your from your vantage point, what we have to do to get more younger Black folks interested in sports radio and what you feel programmers need to do a better job of in their own skin of being accepting because, I mean, we're in a world in 2022, Bomani, where the world's made up of a lot of different people. Like yeah. why it should be one way or the other is ridiculous. They should have as many perspectives on a station as possible. You know, like the two lives two story is always such a mind blower to me. And I make it a point to bring this up whenever it comes up. It is so wild. They were so successful and then vanished. Like there's, there's right. like, like I can look at all the guys who have been a success in a city for a little while and burn their careers down for saying ridiculous things. And somebody's always ready to give them another chance. And the two live stews who were nationally successful and massively successful within Atlanta that somehow nobody could ever find more space for them. Now, where my push on this is less about the need for diverse perspectives, though I do think there's a value in that, certainly. I look at it from the standpoint of the programmers, like, don't you want to just try to find more good people, right? Because this is an interesting industry in the sense that there is a big pool of people that really want to do it, and not that many people who are actually good at it. I don't know of any other job quite like sports radio, where if you think about more people have tried or gotten on a little bit and then got in and realized, wow, man, this is not nearly as easy as I believed, especially in the introductory stages where you're not gonna have a production staff that can do a zillion different things. So all you gotta do is talk. And so one thing I would say that can be done is, I don't know how many young or uh, older black people are interested in doing radio per se, but I know a lot of them do sports podcasts because they ask me to come on their damn podcast every week, right? I don't know necessarily how you whittle down this glut of things and this glut of stuff, but I give an example. Um, now, granted, this is in the digital space, but it's still kind of the same thing. Colin hiring uh, Dragonfly Jones and LeJethro Jenkins to do the podcast for the volume. Those are guys who have been on Twitter for over a decade putting out great content, right? Not just Twitter content, but John does. Like I've interviewed John for John Nichols, uh, LeJethro Jenkins. I've interviewed him for jobs on my television show. He does videos. He's worked at all these different places. Like there's a lot of people that are in this industry that are putting out content that maybe we need to find a better way to whittle down so that people can check it out. But Twitter's going to tell you a whole lot about who can make things happen. I would also relay a story about a gentleman named Joe Sullivan, who used to be the sports editor at the Boston Globe. And Joe Sullivan, I met him in 2006 at the National Association of Black Journalists Convention because Joe Sullivan heard me mention that I was a columnist at ESPN.com. And that's all he needed to hear. And he handed me a business card like Joe was dedicated to bringing people of color onto his staff. And he went out of his way to the places 
where people were. But they're people, you know, your, lo your local black columnist, newspaper writer, whatever it is, like all these people, they're there and they're available. Folks have got to stop thinking their audience is more delicate than their audience actually is. They can handle things, right? Like it's wild that outside of the fabulous sports babe, however many years ago, who's, how many people have been willing to actually roll the dice and put a woman in a prominent position? I think their audiences are more open and more accepting than people give them credit for. Now, what my critics don't quite understand is people who do this and work in this industry, they think I'm really good at it, right? Like nobody has ever done me a favor when they've hired me. Nobody has hired me. The people who have hired me have not cared about ticking no boxes. That is just not the concern that they happen to have in this, right? Like right. this is something that I do at an exceptional level. I am a bit of a natural at it, right? So it's not like, where do we go find the, the next Bomani? You're probably not going to be able to do that. But there are people, and I know there are people that want to do this because they hit me up and they ask me questions about what it is. But it does look to a lot of them like this is something they're not going to be able to do. Now, one thing that is tricky, though, about sports radio is a great way to get on is to start off doing grunt work and then moving yourself around to get in you know, to the right place. Um, I'm not sure if you are familiar with the QCB, who used to be with oh, yeah, Mark Charlotte. Packer in yep. Charlotte. And Tremaine's story is amazing. I remember Packer told me this. Tremaine worked at Wendy's and he's talking to Packer. And if you know anything about Mark Packer and anything about the QCB, they are not two people who would hang out otherwise. <laughs> so <It's> dead um, on. <laughs> yeah, he he tells he tells Mark Packer, he tells Pac-Man, I'm gonna be on your show. I'm gonna be on your show. And he's like, look, you got a card. And Packer says, Well, look, um, here's the card for the person who does internships or whatever. The next thing you know, Packer's at work one day. And there's the QCB in there working as an intern. And he figured out ways while he was working on the staff to parlay it into getting a job. But the reason he could was he had a job working for the city. And so he had a job that was paying enough for him to do this other stuff and then work it up. When I got to the score and they were telling me how little people were getting paid, I was like, wow, this is mind blowing. And then they're telling me everybody lives with their parents. And that was when I realized how the game was rigged is that those people could afford to work for no money. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot of people that just can't afford to work for no money, which means you can't do the entry level stuff that gets you to the next place, right? Well, and the that's other the thing, part of radio is, across the board. You know, and the difference is when you were coming up, you know, podcasting wasn't what it is now. You didn't right. have a, you could build your own brand on YouTube or Twitter or Instagram today that you couldn't do back then the same way. So sometimes now I look at it, I go, why would this guy relocate to four different cities for six years, live miserably to go do that when he could literally get the same experience, just putting it out there, promoting himself. You know, he takes his other job to pay the bills and works at his craft on the side until someone says, hey, you know what? This guy's interesting. Let's uh, let's give him a few hours here or there. But you know what, though? There's still a legitimacy to the gatekeeping of being on television and radio because literally anybody can start a podcast, True. right? True. I, I, I think there's I think there's still a value in having it conferred upon you by some authority that people trust that this is somebody that you're supposed to listen to. Now, you're right. It is a grind and, you know, the, the moving. Like, I never had to move for a terrible job, right? Like, that's a level of it that I never had to deal with. But the people who ultimately make decisions it's easier for them to find out about a radio person than somebody who's just doing a podcast. Unless your podcast is just doing bananas numbers. And there really aren't that many of them that do that. 
like if you want the oxygen and most people get into this for the oxygen and not for the money yep then you're still going to get a different level of oxygen being on the radio than you are from just being a person who owns a podcast oh yeah listen i think big picture you know if you could get to a legit brand that's what you'd live for you want to know that your words matter and people are consuming it I, I want to ask you a little bit, because obviously you're now, you know, HBO television, like you have game theory going. And I look at that and I go to me from the outside, I look at that show. And when I think about whether or not it's successful, I would go, how did it do when it aired live? How would it do on replays? How does it do on YouTube? How does it do on social? And then I take that collective data and I probably go, here's what we get from an impact standpoint. But you're always going to have people who are going to look at the first time it went live and the ratings that come out. And I go, you're watching TV on Sunday night and you're up against freaking football and other things going on. Like, you can't just look at a show in that that one hour prism, um, you know, and look at here, here's this block of time, seven to midnight on a Sunday and go, it is or isn't successful. You got to add everything together. How do you guys look at when it comes to the success of game theory? what you're trying to accomplish and whether or not it's working. It's interesting because with HBO, since it's not ad supported, the definition of success is a little bit more amorphous, right? Um, and so there's no straight line to this many people, like the straight line to this many people makes this much money. I don't really understand how that works at a place like this. And I'll be honest, for the first season, I didn't have any concern in the world for it. The only thing I was concerned about was making six episodes of good television. And I operated on trust that my bosses would tell me if something was wrong. Right. And they told us that we were renewed before we shot the final episode of the season. Like I knew that we were doing okay with it. I did not look at numbers for the show for the first time until last week. And I looked at them or I asked for them just because I was curious and just to kind of have a discussion about expectations. Cause look, I read the trades, like, you know, I see what's going on with Warner Brothers Discovery and all these things. So if there's a way just for us to have clarity, then I wanted to have clarity. But that was honestly the first time that I had ever looked at what the numbers were. And it was fascinating to me to get a look at the different things that they think are important, but also how many more people watch things after the first viewing and the different ways that they ultimately watch them and like what the factors are that contribute to whether or not x amount of people watch this show at this point in time like one thing for example we did a show on easter easter's probably not going to be a great day <laughs> to have people stay it up like super late at night um to watch your show so for us with hbo success Part of it has to do with numbers. Part of it's probably going to have to do with press and ability to generate buzz. And what you really want to have is you want to have a show that they feel like when they're trying to sell you, get HBO, right? When they put it up there, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I like that show. Because that's the kind of thing that makes you decide to re-up. It doesn't even necessarily have to be, I watch that show all the time. I watch that show every week. But you look at it and it makes the overall bundle of products that they have more attractive. That's what we've got to do. So I am, my thought on success for me personally, right? Because this is another thing about it too. HBO don't pay me a cut of whatever money they make, right? They have their determination of success. My determination of success is not whether or not the show gets renewed. That's a part of it. You would like for it to get renewed, of certainly. Course, of course. But my definition of success is I got a chance to make a show on HBO. I've got a chance not just to make a show, it's mine, right? 
am I making a good show that I'm happy about that the people I respect think is good? And if I do that, for me, there's a measure of success. Now, I have to be careful there because there's also, you know, 100 something people, I think, I forget the total number on the staff, but a lot of people whose livelihood is dependent on me. So I can't just be out here living the dream on my own, right? Like, hey, man, just as long as I feel good about it. No, no, no. Like, people are putting their trust in me um, to do this. But I really think our number one priority is we got to make a good show. Because then if we just make a good show, even if those people, if they don't bring the show back, those people that I'm talking about dependent on me, they can at least go out and say they were on a good show. Right. You know, and that'll, and that'll do something for them. So, yeah, like when I saw some of the discussion of numbers of different episodes of our show, that was the only time I ever got to look at any of those numbers. Like it wasn't like it was no all hands on deck at HBO about any of those things. You know, I'm curious. You mentioned earlier how you keep an eye on the trades, Discovery merging with Warner, taking control of HBO as part of that. So how does that change the stakes for season two? Now do you, like you mentioned before, you didn't even think about being renewed. You just focus on the show. Now all of a sudden, you know, they come to you at the end of the uh, uh, season one and they're telling you and you're like, okay, cool. I know we're going to do this season two. But now you go into season two, you got a new group coming in. You obviously want to make an impression. How does that change your mindset? That's a good question. And I've been kind of thinking about that because I, I do feel a bit more urgency this go around. Like I really was just so happy to be there last time, right? Like if I didn't have time to care about a seventh episode, like this is, you know, the stuff the therapists talk about. I was being present. I was present <laughs> in the six episodes. I mean, just imagine I was sitting at my house on a Friday night and I get a call and they're like, hey, want to, you know, want to talk to somebody about maybe doing your dream job? Right. And, you know, and then I get into it and it's with Adam McKay, like all these things like come together and stack up to where I was just like, I can't be worried about keeping it. I got to be worried about having it. Right. Right. But now it feels a little different because I think what's possible feels different. Like the possibility this could be a show that's on for years and years. Like that feels different. I now actually know what, what I'm doing. Like I was learning how to do this type of television show before. Now I know how to do it. And so not that we had excuses before, but the excuses are fewer now. And I want this to be a thing. I want it to be, I would love for our show to be like John Oliver, where you open your news app and they're telling you what John Oliver was talking about last night, no matter what it happens to be. You know, like one thing that I took from my career ups and downs and starting at ESPN and then going local after was it wasn't like I was going to go do something local and then stop working as hard as I had before. That didn't make any sense, right? What I learned when I did a national radio show versus doing a local radio show, they're the same. Like there's the hassles that we talked about, but fundamentally it's just a radio show. I worked no, I'm a, I worked just as hard doing local as I worked doing uh, the national show. Like I got a standard at which I put into things and my expectations are roughly the same on all of them. And really my expectation is I'm gonna do the best that I can. And we're gonna work out what the rest is from there. Well, with this, I'm just going to keep doing the best I can, right? Like the stakes didn't get higher for me. I wasn't nervous at all about doing a single episode of Game Theory or at any point. Like I never was because it was just like, I'm just going to do the best that I can. That, that's what I got. And so, yeah, I, I really want this to be something that goes for a long time. And 
I don't have the same professional relationship with ESPN I had in, you know, before. So like, this is kind of my job in a lot of ways. And so if game theory doesn't come, I'd probably have to come up with something in a way I haven't had to come <laughs> up with something in a long time. Um, but I just think we need to get out here and make a really good television show. And I think if we do that, we'll be fine. And by the way, I think we did, I don't know if we are yet to the point where we have a very good television show, but I think we did a very good job last season. You mentioned working with Adam McKay. Can you foresee yourself at any point branching out, writing or producing scripted shows? Yeah, I've got a couple of ideas that I've bounced with a couple of people looking at documentaries and stuff. I mean, at some point, I would like to not have to be the one walking the stroll to get the money for daddy, right? <laughs> like, like I, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't always want to have to be the one. I'm the product. Like when you like when when you are the talent, you are the product. Right. And if you are the type of person that loves it when everybody knows you're in the room and you get a rush out of that, then being the product is great. I'm not really that kind of person. I also recognize that I am now 42 years old. Um, I was kind of the young hip guy in this game. I ain't gonna be that, but for so much longer, right? And as uh, and, and I'm going to reach a point where I have lots of different ideas, right? And lots of things I want to do. And when you're the product, you can really only do one of them at a time. I'm gonna hit you with a couple rapid fire questions to wrap up in a minute. But when John Stewart left the Daily Show, you asked your agent to put you on Comedy Central's radar, knowing though that they probably weren't gonna come your way. Yeah. Trevor Noah recently left. So has your agent been contacted to re return a phone call to Comedy Central yet? No, nah, not this time. But you know what's so funny about that as I was thinking of it is like it's like it came back up. I thought, but then I was like, but I got a show at HBO now. You know what I mean? Like you realize how wild that <laughs> right, is. That, I know it's that crazy. when that happened before, it was just like, yeah, throw my name out there, see what happens. You never know. And by the way, that was somewhat inspired by like uh, Scott Masteller hiring, hiring Colin Cowherd, one of those one of the most ambitious hired anybody ever made to take the afternoon drive guy from Portland just because he had something, right? Yep. You never know. Somebody might see it in you. But now I got a show on HBO. I feel pretty good about that. So if it's not you, is it Roy Wood Jr.? Yeah, I'm compromised because Roy's a good friend. Roy's been a game <laughs> if you don't give him the endorsement, he's yeah, going to I'd you up later. I would love to see Roy get that show. All right, so I've got a couple rapid fires. Now that the remainder of the tour is canceled, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you regret not going to the Garden to see Rage Against the Machine and run the jewels? Oh, it's about a 10. And what makes it worse is I had a buddy of mine who wanted to come up for it, um, but I was not able to. And I was a little worried about 20,000 screaming, germy people. Like, I admit that that was a bit much for me. But... I was like, it's all good. I'm going to go see them in Madrid. I wanted to go see them in Croatia, but that was going to take too much. I'm going to go see them in Madrid. And me and my best friend bought tickets to Madrid. We still went to Madrid, but there was no show. I don't know if they're ever going to be able to tour again. I will tell you, make a 10, a 20. I was there. That's it was incredible. That's, it was that's, incredible. But actually, that's not my worst concert I ever missed, though. Um, the day I wore that Caucasians t-shirt, um, I was going to see Prince in Atlanta that night at the Fox and he canceled because he was ill. And oh, I couldn't that's a make heartbreaker. It, I couldn't make it to the rescheduled show, but that was the last show. Last one. Next question. Best and worst piece of professional advice you've ever been given. <laughs> um, <laughs> let me think here. I will say the worst. 
it is i will not say who the person was who told me this but he's a very prominent person in the industry and i was having dinner with him this is in 2013 so right after i moved to miami right and he was talking about how he had bought this house and that someone else prominent in the industry had told him hey don't buy the house you can afford buy the house you want and that he was so mad because he bought the house that he could afford and he ultimately was like you're right i should have just bought the house I wanted. And that is the most ridiculous shit I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> um, buy the house you can afford. Like this is not, uh, my life has not been such that I'm like, oh, it's all gonna come up aces, baby. No, 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 no. Buy the house you can afford. Or you mess around out here, like scavenging food out the media room because that's all you can eat. No, 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 you don't. You don't want to do that. I do remember something Ralph Wiley told me once I had sent him some column I'd written and he said, at first, I thought it was. At first, I thought this was an insult, and it may have been, but it still made me think. He says, "You appear to be a master of overstatement. I prefer to be a master of understatement, but you better be a master of something." That's good, and that is key. Like whatever it is that you do in this game, there's got to be something that you do. Like even the people who may, you know, get tired of you know some of the larger commentary that I have about race. Say what you want about it, but uh, when the police kill some black dude, they ain't know who to call, right? Like, like it is not because I'm loud and rambunctious about it. It's because I'm good at it. Like, mm -hmm. you, you got to have something that people could look at and be like, oh, that's that person's thing, right? That's where, like I always say about sports, when you're talking about like the top three picks in the draft, you talk about them in the context of what they can't do in the sense that this person might be a superstar, but what are the flaws? Everybody else is in the league because of what they can do. He can shoot. He doesn't turn the ball over, right? He can block whatever it happens to be. You got to have something that you can do. What show has ESPN missed the boat by not putting you on? Oh, yeah, college game day. I mean, it's a fascinating thing about this game where my agent and I have walked through the building for years being like, oh, you know, Bomani's really into college football. I didn't know Bomani was into college football. Why is this surprising to you? Like, it tells you <laughs> everything about, like, the way that people just envision this stuff as it goes. But oh no no no! I would I could do great things around college football and not just all like you know tearing down the establishment type stuff, right? Like if you ever listen to me and Spencer Hall talk about college football, it's a hoot. Like I <laughs> I am I am one of those guys, and nope, I can't ever get anybody to believe it. That's the part that's crazy to me about it. I can sit here literally and tell you every Heisman Trophy winner in order from 1966 to the present. And people can't believe that I'm into college football. Listen, you may have to do that in the hallways. Maybe it'll put you on there one day. <laughs> All right. So next one. Are you truly off the narcotic, as you say, with the Atlanta Falcons? Or do they still hurt you from time to time? No, 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 no. I dealt with that, man. The Michael Vick thing was just too much. I'm not saying the Falcons did anything wrong, but this was definitely a star-crossed situation. Like, no, 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 no. It may have been hard if they had won that Super Bowl. That might have been tricky, but I felt so validated when I watched them blow it. Uh, <laughs> the Braves, I realize I'll never be able to fully quit them. All right, the final one I've got for you. What makes Mina Kimes a star? Mina is so incredibly relatable. Like, the thing that I think makes Mina so interesting, and I share this characteristic, so I'm not, but I'm not saying it about me, but it allowed me to kind of peep this about her. It's, the, it's a very subtle thing to me, though. Mina's a public school kid, right? And so what happens 
when you are a public school kid who is as bright as she is, is you, you're not really going to be doing nearly as much competing to show everybody how smart you are as you are going to have in like those private school worlds, right? Because it's just different. It's, it's trying to get this place in this, you know, in this, and you got parents with different ambitions and everything else or whatever. You got to learn how to talk about this stuff with regular people when you are as bright as she is and come from where she comes from. And so what you have as a result is this really, really, really bright person who spits everything across, but it's always in English. Like you'll notice she's not hitting you with jargon that you don't need or any of that stuff like that. Like she's really brilliant in that. And so you do that and then you add on top of it just kind of a particular and unique charm that she has. And it all comes together right there. Like I don't think people really get what a big deal it is that she doing X's and O's football on television. Like, like, like that's that's revolutionary. I can't think of anybody who's any woman that's they've allowed anywhere near those iPads to do such things. Listen, man, she uh, she's tremendous on TV. And what you just said was dead on, like the relatability, the ability to be bright enough to, you know, reach the CEO, but yet cool enough to reach the person who's in high school is part of the charm of what makes her really good. And you're right. I hadn't even thought about it, but. You know, she's on NFL Live. Usually that spot's reserved for an NFL former player or a GM. And she's held her own and continues to educate the audience when she does it. So it's really good insight. And, and those dudes respect her knowledge. Like those, those dudes who do that show with her, they are not looking at her as some sort of novelty. Like they really respect what she brings. Thank you for listening to the Jason Barrett Podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe to this show on iTunes, Spotify, iHeart, Amazon, YouTube, or wherever you consume podcasts. And to stay in touch with Jason, follow him on Twitter at SportsRadioPD or read his columns on BarrettSportsMedia.com.